Well, most of you who tune in to television or news programming or the radio or whatever it may be, We'll know that January has been a treacherous month for a variety of sports figures. Whether you're a Notre Dame football player who's found himself in a bit of a debacle, or perhaps Lance Armstrong, who has found his way into the public spotlight. I've been fascinated in particular by the story of Lance Armstrong and have found myself wondering what the Tour de France and the history of this race is like. And how is it a man so fit and determined and accomplished ends up in the place that he is now? And as I did some research into this race, I found some fantastic crossover into this very parable that Jesus is telling us this morning. Now, the Tour de France began officially in 1903, and from day one, doping and allegations of drug abuse in this sport have existed. And by 1924, there were three cyclists who were the top finishers who publicly credited their success to a pill they took called dynamite, which was a combination of aspirin, cocaine, and a variety of other drugs. In the 1940s, there was an Italian cyclist by the name of Fausto Coppi, and what he told the the press and went on television to report was that you could not win this race unless you were on amphetamines. And since 1957, approximately 15 of the 25 men who hold either single or multiple titles, championships in this sport, have been asked to step down or have confessed to allegations of drug abuse and doping. There's a saying on the race circuit that goes like this, no dope, no hope. This is not to excuse in any way Lance Armstrong's behavior, but there was a system in place that operated before Lance Armstrong was ever born or set his first feet onto the pedals of a tricycle. And while most of us, willing to bet all of us, don't have yellow jerseys and cheering fans encouraging us through the Pyrenees on bicycles, All of us have inherited some sort of broken systems in our lives. Many of our families fall on a spectrum. We all have some dysfunction in our families, right? The spectrum is wide. Some of us have come from places that are dark and deeply broken. We all inherit family systems and baggage and emotions and patterns and behaviors And beyond our family systems, we've all inherited cultural systems. The very air we breathe in the United States is thick with consumerism. And without realizing it, we easily view one another as commodities. Our relationships are often transactions. This is the system that we've been born into. And like Lance, every single one of us at some point in our lives must decide whether to blame the issues and the struggles in our lives on our inability to overcome the system, or we decide 
to forge ahead in the name of Jesus and let God come in and heal the broken systems of our lives. Our great adventure, the story that we've been following for the last four weeks, our adventure for today is about how to take the systems of the world we live in, of our families and our culture and all the places that are fractured and broken, and turn them over to God so that he can grow us and those around us up into spiritual maturity. I know Dan's hope for this weekend was that we would have a great conversation about the equipment, the nuts and bolts of what we need to grow into emotionally and spiritually healthy people. In our scripture for today, we see two men who both came from distinctly different systems. And we see the way they navigated and chose to either remain in or break out of the systems that held them. I mean, the first is a Pharisee, and some of you may have studied Pharisees before. They are religious leaders, men whose public profession was to get religion right. They had a public role in the Jewish community and the life of that culture. They had likely spent decades studying God's word. Most of them probably had the first five books of the Bible memorized, cold, knew it by heart. Matthew 6 tells us that they would stand in public places and pray with these boxes, these leather boxes tied to their wrists, their left wrist into their forehead. And in the boxes, they would put pieces of paper that had scriptures written on them. And they would pray publicly. And it was so that people could look at them and say, that is a holy, righteous person. These were people that made community decisions and extended laws and very much informed the cadence of the Jewish life. But the reality of their lives was that the outside appearance mattered more than the heart to them. Performance was prized over authenticity. And the systems that they worked in to keep them alive was prized over personality and honesty about the human experience. And Jesus takes this parable and he looks at the Pharisee and he says, basically, see how he did it? It wasn't right. And he contrasts this with a tax collector. Now, the community listening to this would have believed the Pharisees would be held up as the models of faith because that's what they knew in this community. But Jesus says, now, how about the tax collector? The system he inherited was incredibly corrupt and broken. The Roman government would assign Jewish men to be tax collectors among the Jewish community. So he's extracting taxes from his neighbors and his friends and his own family members. And the way the Roman government told him to make sure that he got a paycheck was to skim off the top whatever he wanted or to add to the taxes so that he could round out his life as he desired. And you can imagine some of them probably did quite well for themselves. You can also imagine what a community would feel like when one among you starts banging on your door and shaking you down for more than their fair share of your hard work. And in Leviticus, 
There's even a law that was laid out against this sort of behavior. So they were not only at odds with their own community, but with the Levitical law itself. Leviticus 25 tells us that if anyone among you becomes poor and is unable to support support himself, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident. Do not take interest from him of any kind. Goes on to say, you must not lend him money at interest or sell him food for a profit. This is exactly what the tax collectors did. They flipped this law for their own benefit. They inherited a broken system. And Jesus puts this tax collector out as a model of faith because this is a man who looked at what he inherited and received. He looked at the expected behavior for him and he went against it. He realized the darkness in his life and the need for complete humility before God. He put humility over posterity confession over denial, and he put belief and hope in God over the status quo. To put it bluntly, he decided to grow up out of his system. He grew up, and Jesus looks at him and says, this is the model of faith that I want you to follow. The folks listening would have bristled This was not the sort of person in their culture who they could look at for a model of faith, but Jesus is moving beyond the systems. And that's the invitation to us. If we, to this day, want to grow in emotional and spiritual health, we have got to make a decision to grow up out of some of the patterns and the habits and the systems that bind us. And I can tell you, obviously, most of us will know this. This is not easy. You know, personally, I'm an incredibly stubborn, strong-willed person. There are so many times in my life where God says to me, this is what I want you to do as a parent, as a spouse, as a daughter, as a believer. And I look at it and I go, Ugh, I'm not ready for that yet, or that doesn't look too exciting to me. Or I'm kind of afraid of that. And I just choose to go the other way. I mean, I choose to stay in the patterns and the behaviors that limit me. And my guess is that I'm not alone. Jesus, he talks about this so often in scripture. Paul talks about this growing up as well. The author of Hebrews talks about this growing up, this movement into spiritual maturity. One of the uh, passages in Matthew, story of Jesus, that I often marvel at is in Matthew 15 when he tells his followers, the disciples, a story, a parable, and he goes on to explain it to them. And they still look at him and they're like, I don't get it. And in Matthew 15, 16, Jesus says, are you so dull? (laughs) He He loved them, but he he was frustrated with their lack of spiritual growth. And the author of Hebrews in in Hebrews 5.11 says this, we have much to say about this spiritual growth. It is hard to explain, though, because you are slow to learn. In fact, though, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. 
And when you read through the letters that Paul wrote to the church over and over and over, you see his invitation to grow up into Christ-likeness, to grow into maturity. Rick Warren says, there is no growth without change, no change without fear or loss, and no loss without pain. It requires something of us to break out of our systems. Growing into emotional and spiritual health is hard. It can scare us. It can bring us to conversations and people that maybe we don't feel quite ready to engage with. It asks something of us. It can be scary. But I promise you, it's not as scary as the alternatives of staying put and continuing to move through life in broken, pain-filled systems, making decisions that limit us and don't allow us to be the people that God has called us to be. James Bryant Smith authored a book called The Good and Beautiful Life. And God's desire for us is that we would live into the good and beautiful life. We need to move towards spiritual maturity to do this. I say too, though, that safety The safety that we perceive in staying put may eventually bore us to a spiritual death. What can feel safe by not moving and growing can get quite boring and eventually bring us to a slow, painful, spiritual death. I think sometimes this is why those who've been on a journey of faith for a long time might say, "Ah, God's not doing it for me. I don't feel it right now. I, I don't feel like going to church. I'm, you know, kind of a little bored. I, I don't know what to read in God's word. The Christian life isn't very exciting to me. People understandably say this at times. And I do wonder if the reason for this is that we've not taken God up on his offer of adventure. Psychologist and Author John Townsend speaks about this, and he talks about how early on in his faith life, he was so excited, and everything was new and and fresh and beautiful in the world of God. And over time, it, it got rote. And he says he says this. He said, although God's word had given me much hope, security, and faith, he said I still had personal struggles and failures that were not being transformed deeply and completely. He says I still found myself fighting the same battles trying to manage the same things through recommitments and coping and trying harder. He says he thought maybe he should go to church more or read more. Then he suggests that what finally got him over that was engaging and fully moving into the adventure that God had called him to, was picking up the equipment for life that Jesus offers us and daring to make the changes in his life that God revealed to him. I've wondered before if perhaps the Pharisee in this story ever found himself bored, enjoying the safety of his system, so bored that the threat of changing up that routine still unsettled him, so he just stayed put. Maybe he was scared of something new that would stretch him or grow him up a bit. 
Maybe Pharisees were so scared that they would crucify the threat to their system, to their safety. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that we all reach a place in life where we come to the crossroads. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. We have opportunities. We stand at the crossroads of life, and God says to us, this, not that, here, not there. He invites us to orient our compass toward him, and he offers to equip us for the journey. And the Pharisee and the tax collector both had those crossroad moments where they had the opportunity to decide which direction it was that they were going to head in. What is the direction you will head in at the crossroad? And do you know what equipment you need for your journey? Jesus promises to equip us. His word itself is equipment for the journey. Any of you who have ever been on some sort of um, expedition or adventure or have read about them will know that there is no expedition that succeeds without the right equipment. Good intentions will only get us so far. We, we could all go together to the base camp at Mount Everest if we wanted, and we could look up and, and say we want to go to the top. It requires a lot of gear and equipment and training and wisdom to get there. Many years ago now, I was um, involved in youth ministry and had the opportunity to travel once to West Virginia with a team of other youth pastors and youth leaders, and we were scoping out um, an adventure trip for, potential adventure trip for high school students. And one of the things that we did when we got to West Virginia was go caving, um, spelunking as it is officially called. And we crawled on our bellies through a little hole in the ground And the guide who took us and the seven other folks I was with in gave each of us three flashlights. One um, miner's helmet with a big lamp on the front of it and two old school flashlights that I shoved in the back pockets of the jeans I was wearing. And he went on to tell us that light is the most important equipment you could ever have in a cave. That if you lose your light, you will die in the cave. That you can't see your hand in front of your face. And these caverns are so big, you don't even know if you're climbing up or down, ascending or descending. If you lose your equipment, you'll die. And this was a wet cave. There was a river in this cave. And one of the tasks we had was to cross over this river. And the way to do it was for us to climb up on a little ridge on the ceiling of the cave that took us over this this river. And I jumped up onto this little ledge, and the minute I did it, I I smacked my back on the roof of the cave and knocked both of the flashlights out of my back pockets, and they fell into the river below me. Thankfully, I was with a guide who had his lights, and I still had my headlamp. But I remember thinking in that one second, wow, I've only got one piece of equipment left. I hope I'm equipped enough for the rest of this journey. 
Rock climbers have all sorts of gear around their waists. Cams and carabiners and, and ropes, they, they can't get up or down without the right gear. If you, if you sail, you know the value of nautical charts. You'll get lost and shipwrecked if you don't have the right equipment. A hiker deep in the backcountry knows the power of a compass. What a tremendous piece of equipment that is for his or her journey. Friends, we will never get where we're going without the right equipment. God's word tells us, though, that God gives us every piece of equipment we will need. That it's actually tailor-made, custom-fit just for us. In Matthew 11, Jesus tells us that he will never lay anything ill-fitting upon us. He will never press a burden too heavy on us. He will never put the wrong backpack or hiking boots on our backs or feet. That his job is to equip us for the journey. If we would just pick up the equipment and move forward with him. And so what I want to do in a quick moment here is offer you some, some pieces of equipment that are found in scripture and that I promise you have been tried and trusted by saints and sages throughout the ages. You all have these little adventure guides that um, you've been getting week after week. Some of this is listed in there. But these are four things that I know for sure God has for us and that will fit us perfectly if we just allow God to equip us. The first is people. There are people who God is using to equip us for the good life in him. Maybe there are pastors, friends, maybe there are therapists, counselors, marriage, mentors. I don't know what it is for you, but some of us need help from either professional or lay people. Please feel the freedom to go get the help you need to move past the things that keep you stunted. The second thing is practices. In Romans 12, 1 to 2, we read that our bodies, are, our, our, our daily lives are our act of worship. In 1 Corinthians 6, we're told to honor our bodies. Some of us are so limited by the decisions we've made. We don't sleep enough. We work too much. We eat too much. Some of us drink too much. Maybe there are addictions or habits that God is begging us to break so that we can be our best selves in him. If there are practices you need to engage in, there are people to help you find your way to that. Maybe there are programs you need to enter. Whatever it is for your life, consider the practices. It's January, right? This is the big practice month of the year, the New Year's resolution month. The third thing are prayers. God is our father. What a joy to get to speak to our father. A conversation with God. Some of us feel comfortable with prayer. Others aren't quite sure where to start. If you don't know where to begin praying, flip to Matthew 6 and just pray the Lord's prayer. That is a beautiful piece of equipment. Pray that until God gives you different words. Tell God what you want to change about your life, what you hope to make better with your family and your friends and your community. Ask him through prayer to make you 
the grown-up person he's calling us to be. And finally, there are disciplines that we can participate in. A Sabbath. Maybe you just need to flip back to Genesis and see that God himself rested after all of his good work. And maybe a day of rest is what you need to discipline yourself to do that. Maybe you need to turn the radio off in your car and sit for 20 minutes in silence and just listen to hear if God has a word for you. Maybe it's a silent retreat or some other sort of practice like journaling Whatever it might be, there are practices that monastic and faith communities have done through the centuries that I promise you will help us find our way. This information, these pieces of equipment are available to us. One of the great joys we have as staff people here at church is is to cheer one another on in these adventures. And so visit our bookstore, find one of us on pastoral staff, Find the equipment that you need to take the next step. It is the invitation that God gives us. When we look at these two men in this, in this story, which one do you want to be? It takes equipment. It takes, it takes work to get to those places. You can do it, though. I promise that you can do it. In closing, I, I want to share with you an image that we've been using a little bit in the 2HC community. I, I spend a lot of my Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. down the hallway. And there's an image of this boy who's ready to launch himself onto the next thing. You know, the, the fact that we haven't had snow here in Chicago as we normally do left us in a tailspin when we got ready for school in my house the other day. There was a lot of fighting and arguing over hats and boots and mittens and why we had to wear those things. And my six-year-old can be particularly challenging. He was arguing with me on, on all of it. He was stubborn, childish. And when I finally got him geared up, he launched himself out of the patio door of our house, down the steps, and threw himself into the grass and just rolled around in circles in the snow. He loved it. Jesus tells us there's a difference between having a childlike faith and acting like a child, being childish. And our invitation is to let go of the stubborn practices that keep us childish and strap the rocket to our backs, take God's equipment, and go. Go on the adventure. Embark upon the journey. There is a good and beautiful life in God waiting for you. Strap the rocket on your back and go. Closing, I'd like to just share a paragraph from Max Lucado, who talks about this very thing in, I think, a beautiful way that will send us all from this morning on together. He says this. He says, God wants us to be just like Jesus. Isn't that good news? You aren't stuck with today's personality. You aren't condemned to grumpy dumb. You are tweakable. Even if you've worried each day of your life, you needn't worry the rest of your life. So what if you were born a bigot? You don't have to die one. He says, when did we get the idea that we can't change? From whence come statements such as, it's just my nature to worry, or I will always be pessimistic, I'm just that way. Who says? 
Would we make similar statements about our bodies? It's just my nature to have a broken leg. I can't do anything about it. Of course not. If our bodies malfunction, we seek help. Shouldn't we do the same with our hearts? Shouldn't we seek aid for our sour attitudes? Can't we request treatment for our selfish tirades? Of course we can. Jesus can change our hearts. He wants us to have a heart like his. Fred's God's word tells us in Timothy that we have been equipped for every good work. So let's throw the rocket on our backs and go for it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you that you have indeed equipped us for every good work. Let us go boldly into the territory you have invited us into, leaning into the promise that you will never lay a piece of ill-fitting gear upon our backs, that you have equipped us, and that you have faith in us that we can serve you. Let us live our lives to your glory, now and forevermore. Amen.